we're going to stand and read Zechariah 8, all 23 verses. And so if you go ahead and stand with me and, and read with me, I'm going to read actually, but you read in your head, um, Zechariah 8, verses 1 through 23. Let's read together. It says, And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city in the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people, Israel, in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you whose in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on that day at the, <clears throat> at the foundation of the Lord of the sorry, foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid and that that the temple might be built for those that for before those days, there was no wage for man or any wage for beast. There was neither was there any safety from the foe from him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor, but now I will not deal with the remnant of his people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit and the ground shall give its produce and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and O house of Israel, so I will save you and you will be a blessing Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purpose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoke me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath for all these things. I hate declares the Lord and the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fasts of the fourth month and of the fast of the fifth month and of the seventh and of the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheer cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, people yet shall come shall yet come even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of the hosts. I myself am going. Many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts in those days, 10 men from the nation of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew saying, let us go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the joy of being in your presence this morning. Thank you that you are a God who uh, has ordained all things that come to pass and who has great plans, not just for our lives, but for the entire cosmos. 
and thank you that you are on the move doing mighty things even in our day. We pray that our eyes would be open to what you are doing, that our hearts would be stirred by the future that you have prepared, which is full not only of our, um, our flourishing and thriving, but full of, most of all, your glory and your praise. So we pray that you would take the praise that is to come on the last day and bring it into our hearts and lives right now, that it might bear much fruit for your kingdom. Speak to us now, for your children are here listening and waiting on you. We ask it together for our teacher and our Lord's sake, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, it's a thrill to be with you all. Uh, I've had a chance a couple of times now and then to teach you, to, uh, to lead you in worship, to play the bass guitar, to uh, sit and worship in your midst. And it's a joy to have Remedy Church as a real sister church and a partner in the gospel, uh, even as I now go forth and do the really scary and mysterious thing of starting a church. Um, we just got permission and uh, some support from our denominational people on Tuesday of this week, and it feels like I've waited for several years to get the pr- approval and permission And that happened, and that feels great. But then there's this kind of thing where you're like, oh, wow, so I'm allowed to do this. I've even been called to do it. Gosh, now I have to do it. (laughs) And the prospect of starting a church from scratch is kind of crazy. But it's for that reason that it's such a thrill to have Remedy Church as a sister church, and really in a lot of ways a mother church of what we're planting here in Rock Hill, Hill City Church Um, And it's great to have a Baptist church uh, that loves the gospel enough to hold hands. um, That sounds a little too cute, doesn't it? Uh, To partner with even a Presbyterian church for the sake of the gospel in our city. Thank you, Fudd, for the privilege of um, serving your people in the word this morning. As I've been preparing to plant a new church, you know, uh, one of the most common things that people ask me is... Why are you doing that? And this comes from people that have been in churches their whole lives, some of them right around the corner from here. It comes from people that have never been in church. And the big question is, what in the world does Rock Hill, South Carolina, uh, why do they need another church? And I'm not sure that I have like the slam dunk answer for that, except for that I have friends uh, that don't know the Lord Jesus And I long for them to have more contexts in which they might come among Christians and come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, And so what happens is I often end up in, uh, sometimes literally, sometimes only metaphorically, in an elevator with somebody for a couple of floors. And we enter on the first floor and we hit the number three or the number four button and we go up together and they ask, what do I do? And I say, I'm going to start a church. And they say, why? And I go, here we go again. Um, And what I want to tell them, if I had more than three floors worth of time, is what I'm going to tell you uh, today in this sermon from Zechariah chapter 8. Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous speech, I have a dream, often comes to mind, but I don't feel so grandiose when I'm in the elevator with someone to where they say, why are you going to plant a church? And I say, I have a dream. And then I go into this glorious oratory and they sit there going, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. Um, But in a way, this is a dream that I have. And it's a dream like Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream 
of a future reality that in the Lord Jesus Christ is guaranteed to come to pass. And what happens is, as an old Jewish, uh, Old Testament scholar uh, says, is that what happens to a prophet is that they become a disturbed man. The Old Testament prophets, this fellow used to say, was a disturbed man. And what he means by that is not just so much that he's grumpy, but that he looks at the, the present, and then he looks into the future in the mists of time, and what he knows is supposed to be and will one day be. And he says, why are we not getting started on that right here and right now? There's such, a, there's such a difference between the way things are and the way things will be according to God's word. Why aren't we getting busy on what he's already planned for our future, even in the present state? So in a sense, I have a dream, and this dream, I hope, is consonant with the dream that God gave Zechariah, the prophet, a disturbed man in his own time, about the city that is to come, and the city, therefore, that God's people uh, can build and see prosper even now. And that's my little speech. Uh, not quite an elevator, three-floor speech, but a little speech, nonetheless, about why to plant a new church in Rock Hill. But let's look at what the prophet has to say about uh, this disruption in our souls as we look at our city now in comparison to the city that is to come. I want to think about this in three ways in the next few moments. The first thing I want to talk about is, what is it like to have a city that doesn't have the Lord God in its midst? midst? What is the city without God? Then I want to talk about, what is the vision that Zechariah has of a flourishing city? The city without God, the city with God that's flourishing. And then finally, what would it mean for the church of Jesus Christ in the present day to be a city on a hill in the midst of our own city? What is the church today have to do with the city that is promised to come. The wilderness of a city without God, the flourishing city under the gospel of Jesus Christ, and finally, what does it mean for the church to be a city on the hill today? It won't take that long to convince you that the city without God is a savage wilderness, um, and Zechariah spends some time in other chapters on this, but in this passage only says a couple of things that hint about how bad it is to have a city that doesn't have God in its midst. If you look at verse 10, he indicates there that there's no wage for a man or a beast. Uh, There's a frustration of the work that happens in the city. Everybody gets up early and goes to bed late, and they get on the hamster wheel and they toil and they can't figure out exactly what they're toiling for. Nothing seems to tie up at the end of the day. Nobody can lay down on their bed at night and say, I did work today, and it was meaningful. Instead, it's frustrating and difficult and thankless. What else happens in the city without God, this savage wilderness? Well, there's also in verse 10, vulnerability. There's no safety from enemies that are going out and coming in. The Bible's full of this language about how the Lord is going to protect our going out and our coming in. And the vision there is of a city that's protected by God and it has walls and people can enter the city and they can leave the city without any fear uh, that they're going to be attacked by marauders on the way in or on the way out. 
because God is there and he is their protector. But in the city that doesn't have God in its midst, Zechariah wails and mourns and is provoked to see a city that is so utterly vulnerable to attack. And so instead of God's people being able to go in and come out at will under his own protection, what happens instead is that enemies go in and come out uninhibited. And everyone has the sense that someone is lurking around the corner ready to uh, take advantage of them. And that frustrates the work that's happening as well. Imagine trying to work and you're doing meaningful work, but then you know that at any moment it could be snatched away and destroyed. It makes it very difficult to get up the next morning. And this is the city without God. And then there's a sense in verse 4. We'll talk about verse 4 later quite a bit. But there's a sense that in the city without God, um, it's not just that toil and frustration Um, plague our work. It's not just that we're vulnerable to attack, but actually that the whole city sort of runs on cutthroat economics, where the bottom line is the bottom line, and there's no point to anything that you're doing except for getting, 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 even if that means taking, taking, taking from other people. In a city like this, it's all work, it's no play, it's no joy, and it's no thrill. God is not there to make wrongs right, and to enable people to flourish in their work. And everyone is vulnerable all the time. That's the savage wilderness of a city that's without God. And it wouldn't take long if I were to take a few minutes, I won't, to convince you that in so many ways, you know, Rock Hill, South Carolina is a wonderful city. And there's so many opportunities. But there's so much of this shall we say, godlessness, actually, that plagues even our own city. And we see it in the vulnerability that people feel from day to day, even in our own town. In your safe neighborhood, you might be able to leave your bike out uh, at night. But there's other neighborhoods where you can't do that. You have to lock it. And there's other neighborhoods where they'll cut right through your lock and take your bike and then sell it in the next hour. Uh, This is not a completely safe place to, to live. And people are vulnerable, and people's work is frustrating. And in a lot of ways, people are just after money and power, even if that means that they work all the time and never play, and you never hear kids playing in the street. But I don't have to convince you that our day is a difficult one, and that even our city is plagued with a measure of the absence of God's gracious presence and the power of his rule in it. And that provokes us, doesn't it? That's ultimately what makes us a disturbed man or a disturbed woman, a disturbed boy or a disturbed girl. As we look at our city and we say, this is not the way that it's supposed to be. We'll talk a little bit about that in the future. But thankfully in this chapter of Zechariah, it's not all doom and gloom. In fact, it's shot through with hopefulness and light. And it's not just the city without God that he speaks of, but he envisions for us and lays out for us a vision of a flourishing city that is under God's reign and his gracious rule. And ultimately, as Fudd's already said, under the reign and rule of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's take a few moments, a few more moments than we just did with the point one, and think about what it means for God to imagine a city where everyone is flourishing. What comes to God's mind 
and therefore to the prophet's mind, and therefore to our hearts and minds when we imagine the city where God is in control. We'll look at verses 1 through 3, for example, there in chapter 8. The first thing that God says about this city where he's in charge is that he is fiercely jealous of that city. And his jealousy is a jealousy that's had, as he says, almost redundantly with great jealousy. And he goes on to say, it's even one that provokes him to wrath. The wrath of God is the just response to injustice that he sees. And it's a determination to correct that and to bring justice to to those evildoers. And God feels this deep in his gut. It's not just the prophet who wakes up one day and says, I wish I had a better city. But it's God himself who says, this is my city and it's got my name on it. It's Jerusalem. It's the city of peace and the city of, of me, the God of Jerusalem. And he says that I will take possession of this city once again. I will treat it as my own property and I will take dominion over it once again. There comes a moment, ultimately, the prophet imagines when God says, you know what? Enough is enough already. God hasn't preserved the universe for all of this time in order to have his name and the city that bears his name laughed at because it's so pathetic and puny and is so overrun with marauders and workers of injustice and hostility. God hasn't done all of this so that this city could wither and die. He's put his name there and he wants his city. There comes a time when God says to the big bad nations of the earth who worship their big bad fake false block of stone and block of wood gods and think that those those gods are the ones that save them. There comes a time when God says to these show-off nations and their fake gods, you know what? Enough is enough. There comes a moment when God's people, in the absence of his reign and rule, tangibly in their lives, say, for goodness sake, enough is enough. I'm desperate enough now to have God come back, and I want him for a change to take possession of my life and my family and my work and ultimately my city. So on the one hand, God is doing a work among the nations, and he's going to say enough is enough to the nations that harass his people. But at the very same time, he is tending like a shepherd the hearts of his own people. And he's turning their hearts slowly back to himself. You see, this is what's glorious about God. He's, he's sovereign in his graciousness and he's gracious in his sovereignty. And so even when God says, you know what? My people don't give a rip about me. So I'm going to take a few steps in this direction. I will keep my hand on them. But my, my burden is to turn their hearts back to me. I want them to miss me and want me and pray that I would come back. And he's in control of that. But at the same time, he's able to move heaven and earth and to bend the will of kings and nations and all of their armies to bring all of this to pass at the same time. He's got a burden for hearts at the same time as he's the Lord of hosts and the God of the nations. And at some point, he's going to cause his people to say, enough is enough. We desperately need our God in our midst 
Could he possibly care for us still? Has he abandoned us? Or do we have hope that he's coming back? Ultimately, there's going to come a day when God says, I want my city back. I want my people back. I want the eyes of the nations to be on me and what I'm doing in my city and among my people again. And even if I have to humble my people to the dust in repentance so that they're weeping and calling out for me, and even if I have to whoop the big bad nations of the earth in order to bring this to pass, enough is enough. I want my stuff back. And there's a practical implication for us, isn't there, in all of this. You don't want to be caught with God's stuff, using it for your own purposes, stolen property, when he shows up and says, I want my stuff back. You don't want to be caught with God's stuff when he wants his stuff back. And you especially do not want to be caught abusing, intimidating, manipulating, draining the resources of his image bearers. He stamped his image on people. And when God says, enough is enough, I want my image back. You don't want to be caught manipulating and abusing his image. He's zealous for his people with great uh, jealousy. And he's even jealous for them with great wrath. Basically, what's wrong with society amounts to people using one another and then disposing of one another in order to get what they want. That's kind of unrighteousness in a nutshell. And God is ultimately going to say, enough of that. So God is possessive. He's jealous, verses 1 through 3. But then he also, the prophet tells us, uh, is determined to protect his people. Look at verse 4, for example. God's not going to be happy until he hears children dancing in the streets. God's not going to be happy until old men and old women are sitting in the streets laughing and reminiscing about when they were the ones uh, yelling and playing ball in the streets. God's not going to be happy until his image bearers that are called by his name are participating. Stick with me for this because this gets a little bit strange are participating in the dance that Father and Son and Holy Spirit have been doing for all eternity. The whole reason why he's stamped his image on people is to invite his image bearers into the dance that he's been doing. That's why they were made. And so when God comes along and he says, you know, enough is enough already, his, his uh, anger, his jealousy, his wrath even, isn't just for him to blow off steam and for him to be in charge for a change or for him to get even so that in some abstract sense, justice is done, right? But actually, God has a greater vision than that. He's determined that there's going to be a garden and there's going to be a crop and there's going to be a harvest and there's going to be a great feast that follows the harvest and that at that great feast, there's going to be a great banquet And that after that banquet is done, there's going to be a joyous dance. 
And it's for those reasons that his spirit is provoked. And he says, enough is enough. I want my stuff back and I especially want my image back. They've been invited to the dance and they don't even know that there's a dance to be gone to. And so long as everyone is walking around fearing what lurks around every corner, ready to pounce on them, there's not going to be much of a chance to plant and to water and to harvest, much less to have a banquet and to have a dance. But when God steps in, he says, you know what? We're going to have a kingdom, all right. And the kingdom where I'm reigning looks like this. Old men, verse 4, and old women sitting in the streets. Verse 5, the streets teeming with boys and girls at play. It means that life and joy are not just for people that are in the prime of their lives and are strong and are wealthy. It's not just for beautiful, supermodel-like 24-year-old women. It's not just for powerful, um, money-grubbing, 45-year-old financier men. But it's for boys, and it's for old folks. It's for the most vulnerable people among us. God's vision is that from the greatest of us to the least of us, we would be invited to the banquet and to the dance so that children are not living in fear, so that old folks are not paranoid, that people, as they so often are, are just trying to get rid of them and take their stuff. That's not what the city of God is supposed to look like. So you might ask, okay, that's really great and everything. The city to come is going to be full of children, old people. Got it. That sounds wonderful. I'm, I'm all in, right? But the question is, how do we anticipate, how do we uh, reflect in some way as, as the city of God, the church in Rock Hill, South Carolina in 2012, um, how do we do this in the here and now? Let me tell you this. Whenever someone says to themselves or to their husband or wife, you know what? This isn't entirely convenient. It's really expensive, in fact. It's going to be pretty awkward for our children at home. But you know what? If we could adopt a Chinese girl in her teens or maybe a Ukrainian girl who's an orphan, if we could rescue out of the grip of poverty and homelessness and ultimately the vulnerability to prostitution and sex trafficking, a girl who's going to be booted out onto the street on her 16th birthday to live life among uh, marauders. If we can rescue such a girl and bring them into our home, then we can demonstrate that we belong to the city that is to come that our citizenship is in heaven, in the New Jerusalem, and we're bringing a little bit of a colony of the New Jerusalem right into our home so that people can say, why did you do that? That's bizarre. Doesn't that goof up your family and your plans and your financial profile? And you get a chance to say, you know what? The city to come. It's peeking into my little house right now. And I'm, I'm joyous at the chance to anticipate it in this way and to exercise my citizenship of the new Jerusalem even in 2012. That's pretty grandiose, and that takes kind of a little little bit of guts. What's a better way maybe even to get started, just for giggles? Say you're not married and you don't have um, the money to bring a Chinese 
girl over and live with you. Every time that you go on over to the old folks' home and you bring your banjo or you walk in and you open up the old upright in the corner and you play old songs that they remember from their youth, or maybe they don't even know what the heck you're singing and playing and plucking and banging out on the piano, but they're just happy to hear the music. And it reminds them of when they were children playing in the streets. And if they're in the Lord Jesus Christ and they hear you banging on the old upright and singing at the top of your lungs with reckless abandon, (laughs) and they're in Jesus Christ, they're thinking, ah, the new Jerusalem is just around the corner. And I can make it a couple more weary years because my citizenship is in heaven. And you prove to them there on the spot that your citizenship is in the glorious city to come. And you're showing that in the new Jerusalem, the vulnerable and the, the aged are deserving not just of honor, but also of joy. You're bringing the values of the new city into the city that is today. How about a couple more examples? Let's say you pack up uh, a mission team and you get a bag full of soccer balls and soccer cleats and you go to most of the world, which is both impoverished and loves soccer, right? And usually plays soccer barefoot. Uh, And usually doesn't even play with an inflatable ball, right? Something harder and not as fun to kick as that. And you empty that bag and you start in the morning And your mission team plays soccer with them until it's so dark out that you can't even see your own feet, much less a ball coming at you at uh, 45 miles an hour. And then you finally throw on the towel at the end of the day. What are you doing? Well, if you're doing that in the name of Jesus Christ, you're doing that as an ambassador of the New Jerusalem coming to their town and saying, won't you go with me to the New Jerusalem? If you think this is great, You have no idea the wealth of the New Jerusalem. You have no idea how plush the soccer fields are there. How impressive the goals are. And you get jerseys, right? And cleats. It's going to be glorious. And you say to them, come with me to this glorious city where my God is not short on cash. And he's not short on soccer balls. And fields of plenty are there for the playing. This is the kind of thing you do to extend the new Jerusalem, even now as an ambassador into the present city. There's something that's even closer to home. Um, North Rock Hill Church is a church that has supported Remedy Church in its infancy. And in a great way, they've supported me as a young church planner as well and trained me. And they'll continue to be a partner church with Hill City Church, with Remedy Church in the years to come. You know what they said? You know what got them provoked like the prophet when they looked at our city? They looked at our city and they saw lots and lots and lots of people that supposedly belong to Jesus Christ, right? Are called by his name. But then they looked and they said, there's lots and lots and lots of orphans in York County. And they were disturbed. And they said, this should not be so. Not in a city that's supposedly teeming with the gospel and so many people that are ambassadors of the new Jerusalem. And they said, that's it. No more orphans in York County. No more. Enough is enough. You know, and they can't single-handedly get rid of all the orphanage that's in York County. But one by one by one, the families of that church are having their hearts pricked. And they're saying, I can have an orphan live with me. 
I can adopt an orphan into my own family. It's not that big of a deal in the grand scope of things. It's a big deal for that orphan, though. And so as we partner together in the gospel from church to church, if we're citizens of the New Jerusalem who believe that that city is coming, what a glorious thing it is to be ambassadors of that city now and say, you have no idea how glorious the city that I'm going to is. Won't you come along and participate in it even now? I'll give you a citizenship card. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it'll be glorious. So God uh, sees a city that's flourishing and that's prospering. It's under his protection. It's thriving under his rule. Uh, What else? There's a city, verse 12, that's fruitful in every possible sphere. Um, The prophet says, I see a city. I have a dream. There's a city that is Um, full of peace. There's going to be a sowing of peace. And in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, when you see the word peace in English, it doesn't just mean, you know, peace, like peace in the Middle East. (laughs) Let's stop the fighting, right? But peace in the Jewish mind, in the Hebrew mind, and in their life meant, and when they said, I long for peace, they don't just long for people taking a chill, right? And getting along for a change. It's not the cessation of hostilities. But it's all that the cessation of hostilities means for full human flourishing. Peace means shalom. It means every sphere is going to be just shot through with blossoms and fruitfulness and joy and laughter and celebration. It means everything is working the way it's supposed to work. Humpty Dumpty has been put back together when there's shalom. What else? Shalom means uh, the vine, as the prophet says, will give its fruit. Vine is, uh, and, and wine in the Old Testament is a symbol of joy, fullness of joy, forevermore, celebration. The ground, the prophet says, is going to give its produce instead of the futility of fighting with the soil for just enough to survive. Instead, now we're going to plant and stuff's actually going to grow and it's going to blossom and it's going to be delicious. That's the vision that the prophet has of fruitfulness in every sphere. What else? Justice all around, verses 16 and 17. God's going to see to it that falsehood is banished, not just so people aren't lying to one another, but so that for a change, real, true commerce can happen in the city. And people can be men and women and boys and girls of their word for a change. God's going to see to it that the decisions that are made in the halls of power and authority at the city gate, as he says there, are decisions that are made not just so that the powerful can get more wealth and power, but so that others, even the vulnerable, are made less vulnerable and even have a shot at a flourishing life. So that there's peace and full flourishing in every possible sphere. That's the vision of the fruitful city where God has become finally the God of his people and the God of his city. And that's what Zechariah is provoked by. Then the question is, how can we here in 2012 be a city set on a hill? We've talked about the frustration of a godless city. We've talked about the flourishing of a Godful city, if you like. But then what about the church in the New Jerusalem? How do we anticipate that? I've given you some examples already. But Zechariah sees a day, verses 20 through 23 especially, when the city of God actually becomes 
the desire of the rest of the cities of the world. It's really kind of marvelous what happens here because, of course, Zion, New, the, or the Jerusalem of that day, was the laughing stock of the ancient Near East. They were the puny little pathetic city uh, that couldn't make it work and that was constantly being run over by the big bad cities and armies and nations of their day. And everything was in ruin. Even the wall that was supposed to protect the city wasn't done yet. And everybody was longing for the protection and the flourishing that would come when a city was walled in by uh, bricks and mortar. But God envisions a day when the city is not just protected and walled in, and not just by bricks and mortar, but by his own presence. And he sees his people no longer having to endure the ridicule of their neighbors. What are you building? Why are you slapping brick and mortar together? It's no use building that ancient wall. You're not going to protect that pathetic city. And what's the use of even protecting it? It's in shambles. Just move on. There's no hope here. What happens with these people is very similar, I think, to what happens with Noah in his day. Uh, we read this in the children's storybook Bible to our, our kids. And there's a point in there that the author makes where all the neighbors are laughing and pointing and giggling at poor Noah who's trying to build the world's first big boat. And nobody believes that there's any point in it because the rest of the population has given up hope that they can trust in a God who is going to take them somewhere. And there's laughing. And there's laughing not just at them, but ridiculing of their God. And that hurts. And this happens to us actually all the time, doesn't it? Um, we get so weary, don't we, if we're honest, of being written off uh, by our neighbors as people who are into pie-in-the-sky religion. You people are so naive. You're brainless. You're so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good. You're hopers in things that will never be, and you're so bombastic about that hope, and you're all in our face with your religion. Just quiet for a change. And when we get that preached at us by our culture, by our city, even by our neighbors, even in subtle, undermining ways, it really gets to us, doesn't it? Hope in us eventually starts to wither a little bit instead of flowering and prospering. And we start to wonder, does God actually come through with his promises? Is the stuff that I'm doing really going to count for all of eternity? And then what happens is, as what happens in Zechariah's day, is God actually shows up and he actually comes through on his promises. And the people kind of go, really? This is actually happening? Well, I mean, I, like, I believed it and everything, but now it's really coming to pass? I almost forgot that this was what my hope was in. You see, I had a superficial or just a technical nominal belief that, yeah, God is God of the nations and he's going to bring his glory and fame to all the nations and he's going to do it right here in Jerusalem. But it's been a long time since I actually hoped that that would happen. It's interesting that um, there's a, pro or a priest, rather, in the beginning of the New Testament, in the Gospel of Luke, and in the first chapter, I believe, who's named after this old prophet, several hundred years before him, Zechariah. And Zechariah the priest is in one of these conundrums too. He believes, 
technically, he's participating in all the religion that says, yeah, we believe God is going to do what he promised. We believe it. It's going to happen. But he's lost hope in his gut. And you know what happens to him? He gets, he's a priest, right? So maybe as a priest, you get one shot. You know, you draw your name out of the hat and you get to be the one that goes into the temple and into the holy place and you get to burn incense there, right? And the whole nation is standing outside of the temple and they're praying and they're watching you go in and they know that you're taking their prayers and you're going into the presence of God. You're burning incense and you're lifting up their prayers and all of their hopes and longings to God, right? You get one shot maybe to do this as a priest. Like you're the man for that day. This is your big day, right? Zechariah goes into that holy place. He lights up the incense. He starts doing his prayer. He's proud of himself. He's excited. This is my one shot. And he starts praying, God, how about the consolation of Israel? How about you come back to Zion and claim her as your own for, again? And then wouldn't you know it, the angel of the Lord shows up, right? And the angel of the Lord says, your request has been granted. And Zechariah says, what? What are you doing here? And the angel of the Lord says, well, I've just been in the presence of Yahweh. And he said, go answer their prayer. Tell them I'm on the move. Tell them I've heard their prayer and that I'm going to actually move. And Zechariah says, really? Uh, okay. I mean, I was, just pray- I was just praying. I just came in and I- it was my job to pray. And the angel, it's as if the angel is saying, but you were praying to Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth. Didn't you believe what you were praying? And the angel says, you know what? You want to have a kid, don't you? You and your wife, Elizabeth, haven't been able to have a kid, Right. Zechariah says, yes. Uh, Angel says, your kid, by the way, you're going to have a kid. He's going to be a boy. He's going to be a great prophet. And he's going to be the one that has been longed for, who will go right before the Messiah and point the way to him. He's going to be the most honored of all the prophets and have like the prime time slot among all the prophets to show the way to the Lord Jesus. The angel says all this to Zechariah and he goes, but my wife is barren. She doesn't have kids. This doesn't happen. And the angel is going, come on, Zechariah. You're praying for all this, and I'm saying it's going to happen right here. I'm going to use your kid to do it. Zechariah, like us so often, has lost the real, living, believing hope that God just might show up someday and fulfill his promises. Do we believe that? Do we believe that God could just show up and say, it's time? It's marvelous. What has to happen in Zechariah's day is really kind of humorous. If you think about it, uh, the people, the inhabitants, verse 20, of many other cities are going to come to Jerusalem and seek the presence of the Lord there. And it's almost as if the people of Jerusalem are watching all of these migrants come from far distant foreign countries and they're going on into what's left of the temple and they're seeking the Lord. And the Jerusalemites are going, what are you, what are you doing here? They're like, we're here because God is in your midst and we trust in him and we're going to repent. We want him to be our God. And the people of Jerusalem are going, I think I've read that somewhere in my scriptures. I guess I technically believe it's really happening. 
yeah, it's really happening right in your midst. You know, I was, um, I was 31 until I got to go to New York City, and I've wanted to go to New York City for quite a while, right? And it's not that difficult, actually, to get there. It seemed like it took me forever uh, to finally make it happen. I've got three children and a wife, right? So <clears throat> I had to buy my ticket. I had to get my, um, do an online e-check-in and then wave my iPhone at the machine. It scanned me. I had to have the pat-down and all that stuff. Get on a plane, go to New York City. I'm in New York City, finally. This is great. But in the ancient world, to pack up your family and to go into the desert on a camel with all of your water and all of your food for your long journey, that's kind of a big deal. It's kind of a commitment, right? Um, And they're going to do this, and they're going to go to Jerusalem, the puny little pathetic city where there is no God, supposedly. But what's happened is that God has come back to inhabit his city. And they're not just tourists and sightseers coming, but they're pilgrims. And they're from all the nations. And it's marvelous. And it surprises the Jerusalemites, the people of God, that they have to have evangelists from other places come into their midst and say, did you you read what he said? Many peoples will have, uh, many Jews will have their collars grabbed by foreigners. (laughs) And they say to that Jew who's supposed to hope in all this stuff, let's get on down to the temple because God is there. I'm going. Are you? You're surely going. You believe this stuff, right? And so God will raise up surprising evangelists of what he's doing to convince our wayward, unbelieving hearts that he's actually going to come through on his promise. What God is going to do with his weak, pathetic nation, with his small, puny city, with his weak, frail, uh, battered and bruised church in the 21st century, is he's going to get us to the place where we will say, you know what? When I am weak, then I am strong. Because God is strong. He's going to get us to the place where we say, I am hopeless without God, but there's a God of hope in our midst. A God of grace and glory. And a God whose grace is sufficient for me, even in my weakness. Over and over, God says to his people, you know, it's not because you are great and mighty that I saved you. It's actually precisely because you're weak and helpless. It's not because you were spiritually adept that I had any interest in you. In fact, I hate to tell you, but you're a people whose hearts are hard and stubborn. In fact, you have this nasty habit of killing the prophets that I send to you to turn your hearts back to me. What God is after is a people that are ready to say, you know what? I am weak and frail. And so I need a strong God. And I believe in a strong God. He wants a people who are able to say, you know, I've never been more convinced than I am today that God is awesome. And he's strong even when I'm weak. You know, there was, a, uh, there was a fellow who, just a couple centuries after Zechariah, the prophet, who came on into Jerusalem. And Jerusalem wasn't looking too pretty in those days either. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth uh, set his eyes on Jerusalem, that ancient city, and he entered it and he wept and he wailed about it. And he was provoked like the prophet in his spirit. He was entering a den of thieves, the place that kills the prophets, 
the place where economic selfishness is so pervasive that it's even present right up on the temple doors. These are a people who want what they want and they'll kill to get it. Jesus doesn't enter that city when he's an old man and vulnerable. He doesn't enter that city when he's a little boy, vulnerable. He enters the city in the prime of his life, when he's at his strongest. And he says, you know what? I will become weak. In fact, I will go to the city and I will die. And so Jesus had his own personal famine like the people of God had so many years ago. He became parched. Um, He was thrown outside of the city and he was murdered. He had at his disposal all the armies of the world and all the hosts and armies of the angelic forces at his disposal. And nevertheless, the armies of the world assembled against him. But he set his face towards Jerusalem and endured that, that kangaroo court that condemned him. And then he was thrown out of the gates and he was lynched for all intents and purposes. You know what's marvelous? When you read the last couple chapters of the Bible and you get the provoked heart of God that has a dream and a vision of the city to come, you get that city and it's finally coming. Do you know what that city is called? It's called the New Jerusalem. Now stop and think about that for just a second. Jesus sets his face towards the earthly Jerusalem. And he's destroyed there. And then he triumphs over the grave in his resurrection, forgives and pardons sinners. And he says, let's have a new city, shall we? Let's think of a name for it. And you know what he picks? New Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets. You know, when the Dutch come to America and they set up shop in what's now New York City, they say, ah, I love Amsterdam. Let's have a new Amsterdam here. New Amsterdam. Jesus goes into glory. And he says, let's build a city. A new city. And he names it after Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets. It's marvelous. This, this son of God of ours is provoked and disturbed in his spirit. But he has a dream and he's going to bring it to fruition for goodness sake. And so it's not too much, is it, for us as his people, as ambassadors of New Jerusalem that's going to come down out of heaven? It's not so much for us to go into our town and say, yeah, you can have 10, 15, 20, 30 years of my life. And I'll pour whatever resources and energy that I have into the city to seek its flourishing. I'll go on down with my banjo and, and the upright to the old folks' home. I'll adopt an orphan. I'll do whatever it takes to be an ambassador of the new Jerusalem. Because Jesus is there and it's coming. And it's going to be so glorious. I hope that that's your heartbeat for Rock Hill, South Carolina. Increasingly, it's, it's become, because God has provoked me, my heartbeat for Rock Hill, South Carolina. I know it's FUDS as well. I know it belongs to many of you. If you're going with me to Hill City Church, 
I hope that you're going because that's your heartbeat. We want to get some rumors of the New Jerusalem spreading throughout Rock Hill, South Carolina. And if you're in Remedy Church, that's Fudd's heartbeat and his desire for you as well. Be a city set on the hill full of chatter and rumors of the glorious New Jerusalem to come. Where we'll do nothing but what we're about to do in pathetic, small, uh, this is glorious, of course, but in, in puny form compared to uh, the worship ensemble and glory. We'll do it for all eternity. And we'll surround the captain of our salvation with praises and thanksgiving. And then like we'll do in a few minutes after the songs, we'll render our tribute to our God and give him all that we have, not just a tenth or a portion. And, and he'll be all in all and chase away all the sadness and vulnerability. That is the glorious, great news of the gospel. I hope that you believe in it, and I hope that this week and in the weeks to come that you live for the glory of Jesus Christ because he lived in your place and died in your place and rose victorious. And boy, is he bringing a great city to come. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we've only scratched the surface of all that you plan for the nations, all that you're going to do. And we long, O Lord, to see a little bit of fruition of your purposes, even in our day. Would you bless us that our vision and our provocation might not be unanswered, but in the days and weeks and years to come, we might see an inbreaking of uh, your kingdom, that we might see colonies of the New Jerusalem scattered throughout Rock Hill, South Carolina, and infusing our town with your glory and grace. Change us so that we might be missionaries to our city, not out of burden, but out of great joy. Provoke us, and most of all, fix our eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith and the one in whom we have deep and abiding hope, the Lord Jesus Christ. And pour out your Spirit upon us now as we seek to worship him in spirit and in truth. Give us a new song in our hearts that comes from our mouths with great praise to our God. And we pray that you would be pleased to ride on the praises of your people in these moments. Hear our prayer and pardon our sin. And most of all, be our great God. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.